This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Have you ever had a situation where you have achieved a personal best? And then maybe you relax a bit and you don't push even further. It's apparently more common than you might think. New research from here at the Wharton School and at the University of Toronto suggests that. Eitan Green is an assistant professor in the Operations, Information, and Decisions Department here at the Wharton School. He joins me here in the studio. And Ashton Anderson is an assistant professor in computer science at the University of Toronto. And they combined to take a look at this and how this impacts people right now. Eitan, nice meeting you. Thank you for coming in. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Ashton, great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. So uh, tell us a little bit about the research that you did, Eitan, about well, first, the idea of looking at this, but secondly, what you actually looked at to come to a lot of these these ideas. Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I'm somebody who who really disdains self-help books, but I should admit that this is a paper about how to improve yourself. So there are many aspects of my life where I want to be better. I want to be a better runner. I want to be a better biker. I want to be better in the classroom, get better ratings. I want to be a better dad. And so in many of these situations, we have quantitative performance measures that tell us how good we are at something. So I know in the classroom, I get ratings. They tell me every semester how good I'm doing on a four-point scale. Yeah. And these quantitative ratings, they help us think about how to develop things like goals to push us to become better, to improve ourselves. And so so goals, it, it's a really tricky process to figure out what the right goal is to set for yourself. So, so goals are this double-edged sword. They're double-edged in the sense that they can be motivating. If you're just short of a goal, you're going to put in some effort to surpass it. But once you surpass it, as you alluded to, uh, it, it becomes demotivating. So mm-hmm. you, you tend to take your foot off the gas pedal. Um, and, and so what we do is we propose a, a solution to the, this problem. Basically, uh, we propose the idea of a personal best goal as something that can uh, be what really is an appropriately calibrated goal. So personal best, if it's too easy, what you're going to do is you're going to surpass it quickly, it will be reset. Uh, if it's too difficult, well, it's never really too difficult in the sense that you achieved it before, so it's definitely within the realm of possibility. Um, and so what we do is we we show that this operates as a goal in the manner that I just described. So it's uh, motivating when you're just short of it and demotivating when you just pass it. And we do this in the context of online chess. So we have this really beautiful data set, over 100 million uh, online chess games mm-hmm. played over 16 years. Um, so it, it's incredibly rich. We we actually have players in this data set who have, uh, at least the outlier, the, the one we observe playing the most games, has played 178,000 games or something like that <laughs> over 16 years. So th- this play- person is is playing like 30 games a day on average for 16 years. Oh it's, it's, it's really nuts. Like, of and, course, and of course, a chess game isn't exactly a five-minute adventure that you're going to be going Well, so, so this is blitz chess. So you, Oh, okay. You have timers, so the games last between 6 and 30 minutes, okay. and this person presumably is playing many of these games simultaneously. So so in chess, you have a rating. This rating tracks how good you are. When you win a game, your rating goes up. When you lose a game, it goes down. And so what we're able to do is we're able to look at people's trajectory and their ratings and see when their ratings approach the highest ever rating they've achieved before. And so as their rating approaches their highest ever rating, we see that what looks like they put in a little bit more effort than they usually do. So their performance, their win rate, exceeds what we would expect given the opponents that they're choosing to play as they approach that marker. Uh, But once they exceed it, we see this really... Uh, large, it, it's a five percentage point, 20% increase in the rate at which they quit. That is, they step aside, they don't play for at least an hour. And so we have this motivating element when you're just short of your personal best, and this demotivating element right when you pass it. Well, Ashton, I, I, speaking specifically about that, I, when you're talking about somebody that is trying to reach a personal goal, 
I, I, and I was thinking about this yesterday, is the fact that there's that level of competition that probably a lot of people feel that want to succeed. So then if if somebody has reached that goal and they kind of take that break, do they lose that level of competition? Yeah, that's a really good point. So um, it's definitely something like Eitan said that we see repeatedly in, in, in the data is that when people reach this goal, which is actually a very difficult goal to reach because by definition you've only hit this level once before and like, like uh, Eitan was saying, people play a lot of online chess. Uh, so when they get there, they're so excited they don't want to drop down again so they stop playing. And uh, one thing that people have uh, sur- sur- surmised is that you know this is maybe the wrong thing to do because you're at your best level. This is when you're playing your best chess. This is exactly when you should be playing. Um, so it's kind of a counterintuitive uh, in, in, finding. So part of this is also uh, for people that take a break and and whatever that time period you mentioned it an hour eight on. Uh, you're talking about people that if you reach that goal and potentially would be playing that next time, they seemingly have a concern of not scoring as high as they would have that last time. And they're almost, you know, they've kind of lost something. Oh, yeah. I mean, you definitely want to keep your you, you want to be at this place where where your your current ability is, is at your peak, at least right. measured by these ratings. I mean, this happens in a lot of domains. I know, you know, in baseball, if you're batting, say, 301 last game of the season, maybe. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Maybe, maybe you try for a walk or you ask your manager to take you out like like the. I think we see evidence of this type of demotivating element in many. I will I will give you the, the most historic one from baseball. Ted Williams back in the 1940s, the last player to hit 400 in a season, the last day of the season had to play a doubleheader. He had the opportunity to sit out the games and not play it and, and secure the last 400 batting average season in baseball history, and he still played and he still kept it. So he, he had that competitive nature, Ashton, and wow. that's that's something that I, I think a lot of people really build off of, correct? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I mean, um, so one thing that's uh, that would be interesting, um, interesting to study, something that we haven't been able to yet, is to understand, like, which players, uh, you know, keep pursuing their personal best even after they've gotten there and which players stop. And I think you're pointing to that, like, Ted Williams was maybe one of these people who is just, like, you know, had that competitive nature, and that's why he was such a such a great player. So then, if for those people that do take that time off, what do you think they lose in the interim? Because if you think about it, maybe from a business perspective, if somebody has a success on a project and they don't follow it up, or they lose, there's the potential of having that that tangible financial loss from the time that they take off. Right. At least in the context of chess. Uh, your chess ability fluctuates. You know, either the, your, your chess rating is kind of an average measure of your skill, but um, from day to day and from week to week and month to month, your skill goes uh, up, up and down. And so, if you are not playing when your ability is is the highest, then you're potentially missing out on you know striking while the iron is hot. Um, and so, in other domains like business, maybe uh, something similar would be would, would be going on. So how do you think, can, can you start to formulate Ashton ideas as to, you know, how this not only impacts people that are playing chess, but, but in other areas of society? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think the biggest takeaway from this work is that um, people are very motivated by their personal best. Um, it's something that people want to strive towards, and um, it's something that you're only able to strive towards when your uh, performance is quantifiable. So 
and as uh, performance becomes quantifiable in different domains, then I think we'll see this kind of behavior uh, in in more and more uh, uh, demands. So I think that's definitely the biggest uh, takeaway from 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 this work. Hey, Tom. Yeah, one thing that we're able to do as well is we we can look at multiple goals. So we we basically compare the motivating and demotivating effects of uh, of personal best with round numbered ratings. So we can look at what happens when you're just short of say a rating of fifteen hundred or sixteen hundred. What happens when you just surpass it? And we see the same demotivating element when you surpass a round number that you quit basically at similar rates. Uh, but we don't see the same motivating element in anticipation of a round number. So I think what this really points to is the importance of setting the right goals for yourself. Goals that are appropriate really difficult and well yeah. calibrated that if 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 you choose to set goals that's not going to be sufficient to necessarily improve your performance you have to set the right ones in terms of the time element which you mentioned if if people hit that goal and they take that break you mentioned an hour or more i mean we're we're not talking about people walking away three days five days maybe in some cases they do but for the most part it's just taking that break to whether it's quote-unquote clearing your head whatever it might be and then coming back and trying again yeah, that's right. I, I mean, um, there are people who take many days between games. Um, obviously, the, the, this data set uh, tends to feature people who are addicted to chess, and so they're, they're back relatively quickly. Ashton, one of the things I, in reading about this, I guess, that, that you also looked at are things like status quo and, and expectations, correct? Um, yeah. In, uh, in the context of chess, it's a little bit difficult to, uh, to say what the status quo is, but um, that's kind of uh, one of the main goals that that, that uh, Previous research has, has found that that people uh, uh, go go uh, go for. And so it, it, it this is really about uh, obviously the competitive nature of people in general. And, and I guess you're probably I don't know how closely you dove into it, but are you able to to really kind of distinguish as we were talking about before the differences between truly competitive people and people that are maybe not not as competitive. Yeah, definitely. So as uh, Eitan was saying, we also looked at uh, round-numbered ratings, so around like 1,600 or 1,700 when your chest rating is, is, is around then. We see similar uh, motivating effects right before the round number and then demotivating uh, effects after. And one thing that's nice about studying round numbers is that um, there's much more data kind of per person because, like, you know, a per, someone is only uh, breaking their personal best maybe a handful of times over their over their. Uh, tenure on, on, on this like online chess server, but they'll be around round numbers very often. And you can see actually very clear patterns that some players are very motivated by this and some players actually don't care uh, uh, um, at all. So uh, the people who have been on the site longer, who are on average better players, they're the ones who tend to care more about these uh, round, round number goals. I think presumably the same thing would be true with personal bets, although we just don't have uh, enough data per person to to make to, to actually make 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 that claim. Eitan, what do you think are, are the implications of this type of research moving forward? I mean, obviously you're looking at, at playing chess, but where do you think this this type of research has the greatest impact when you when you take it outside of the realm of chess? Yeah, so I mean, as I mentioned at the beginning, I, I think that this helps us think about how to formulate goals and we're thinking about improving ourselves. So um, it's not sufficient just to say, I want to be better at X. I want to be a better runner. I want to be a better biker. I want to be a better father. I want to be a better teacher. You have to sort of set goals and a plan of action for yourself. So goals are important because they provide the right motivation. The right goals are obviously important, as we show, because some goals are more motivating than others. 
Um, one other thing that, that comes out of these data is basically if you look at some of these players who have played a long time, you just look at the trajectory of their ratings, the, for the vast majority of players, there's very little improvement. So this player who's played 178,000 games over 16 years, this person's rating is basically fluctuating, fluctuating in a very narrow band. So they're, they're, they're practicing, but maybe you can say they're not training. That there's there's some element beyond just setting the appropriate motivation and just doing something. It's not it's not sufficient to play ten thousand hours. You have to play ten thousand hours in the right way. Especially if there's somebody that is at the high end of the of the scale. I mean, you're talking about somebody that, as you said, may be trying to gain a point, two points, five points, whatever that number might be. They may be a, a, a phenomenal player in terms of the scope of of all what was it, seventy three thousand players that that you looked at. But they still want that last little bit. They want that that last small hill to climb. Yeah, that's right. And I think an interesting question is how you got there. Goals are one part of the picture, and I think that there's something more to the mix. I guess to a degree, Ashton, how much of this do you think moving forward is just the, the, the personal mindset of the individual involved in this? Because I'm thinking, you know, with us being a business radio channel, you think about goal setting within the business setting. A lot of times those goals are being set by managers, C-suite, whoever it might be. Right. And, and you have people that are, are trying to come along and, and meet those goals. Those are goals that are being set not by the person themselves, but but by outside forces. That's right. Yeah. Um, I think what's one what's really nice about this work is um, is that we show that people are can be kind of motivated by uh, numbers that are kind of generated by them themselves. So you do definitely have these external goals, you know, goals set by the by by the manager and so on. Um, but it's you know it would be feasible in my mind to also kind of make more salient things like you know. The, your best sales in a month or something on a, on a personal level, uh, because this work shows that people are definitely motivated by by uh, numbers like 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 that. Yeah, I think it's tricky to set goals for other people. Uh, if you set a blanket goal for, say, a sales force, you're going to have some salespeople who are demotivated by that goal because it's very easy to achieve. They'll achieve it relatively quickly, and then they'll stop putting in effort. Other people will be too difficult for them, and so they'll say, well, I will never get there. Uh, so it's important to basically calibrate these goals for the individual, and something like a personal best does that naturally. That, that That's an interesting uh, potential move, Ashton, down the road, because when you're talking about companies these days, they are looking for not only the business success, but they are also, in many cases, looking for the success of a group of people. Mm-hmm. And when you're talking about a group of people, the goal may not necessarily be the same from one person to, to the next working on that particular project. Right, exactly. I mean, your employees are doing different things. They're pursuing different goals. And uh, to the extent that you can personalize those goals to the, in, to the individual uh, em- employee, um, I think they would just be uh, more motivating. 844-942-7866 is the number if you would like to join in with a comment or question. We are joined here in studio by Eitan Green of the Wharton School and uh, on the phone, Ashton Anderson of the University of Toronto. Again, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Uh, we're talking about the research that they have done regarding personal bests and when you reach a personal best, do you slow down? Do you stop? Or do you pick it up and continue again? How often, Ashton, in terms of the research that you saw, was the amount of time that somebody took off a very limited time? And how often was it maybe a more prolonged period of time? You know, people wanting to get 
using the old term, get back on the horse and go after it again? <laughs> well, um, in the context of online chess, we're, uh, we're really studying a population of very competitive and very uh, addicted chess players. Uh, so it was typically short um, periods of, of time that, that people uh, took, took off, like in, uh, I think, on average, um, you know, less, uh, less than an hour and then typically a few hours. Um, but there were some, I mean, there are definitely cases where people, you know, set a personal best and then never came, came, came back. So uh, kind of stand the, 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 full, the full gamut. And again, that's probably... That, that's probably within the makeup of the person itself, Aton, in terms of making that decision of, I've gotten my goal, thanks, I'm done. I, I, you know, I don't need to, I'm going to go look for a new challenge in comparison with, okay, I've gotten this goal, but let's see how far I can go beyond that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting when you think about sports. I'm a sports fan. I think about people who retired on top, like John Elway. So we we, we praise John Elway because he knew when to get out, right? But we don't yeah. know the counterfactual. Maybe he had a Peyton number Manning of good too, years yeah. left. Right, like, okay, so, well, Peyton Manning, he was arguably on Little the downhill, bit, yeah. even though he won a Super Bowl at the end of his career. Um, but, you know, maybe people like John Elway had a lot of years left. Like, you know, they could have played into their 40s like Tom Brady and played well. And we're missing out on that because... Something about them so they should go out on top. And so there's this weird thing. You think if you were competitive, you, well, when you set a personal best, you'd want to set another one. But certainly John Elway is one of the most competitive people in the world, I'm sure. And, and his version of competitiveness is to say, no, I've reached the apex and I'm going to leave at this point. Michael Jordan the same way. And, and not that it's necessarily linked action to, to this particular research, but that competitiveness, using the example of John Elway, that can carry on to whatever that next project is. I mean, he was obviously competitive as a football player, but he's now an executive within that, that Denver Broncos team, and he's probably just as competitive to try and win a Super Bowl as an executive as he was as a player. Right, definitely. I mean, I think a very uh, you raise a very in, uh, interesting point, uh, something that I think Ethan and I would like to study further is, trying to identify competitiveness as like a trait of a person. I mean, it definitely seems that way in, in online chess. If you're competitive one year, you're competitive the next. Um, and yeah, I, do, I definitely think that's true. 844-942-7866 is the number if you would like to join in. Aton Green of the Wharton School joining us. Ashton Anderson of the University of Toronto joining us on the phone. So is there a next, is there a next step in this process playing off of this research you know, Ashton mentioned about that that competitive angle and and whether or not is that the next natural step for for you? You think in this in this research, Aton? Yeah. So we're looking at two things. So the first thing we're looking at is what happens when you win versus when you lose. Is that motivating or is that demotivating? Aside from where your rating is relative to the best ever rating, and how does that vary based on how good of a player you are? And so what we're able to do is, you know, it, it's difficult to basically just say, well, you won. What happens next? You quit because whether you won, it's tied up in a lot of factors. And so what we can do. Is we can basically say, well, you know, you're randomly assigned either the white pieces or the black pieces, and that basically gives us, you know, what we would call instrumental variation to tease out this effect, the effect of winning on your motivation going forward. And so what, what we find preliminary, and it's definitely preliminary, it's not published yet, um, is that the better players basically get de demotivated by losing. So the better players, they start a session, they lose a game, they're out. Uh, it's the worst players that they lose a game to start a session, they're like, okay, I'm going to try going forward. Um, so I think that was a little surprising to us. The, I, I meant to ask you this before. It, it, the, the players that you were researching, were, was it predominantly here in the United States, or were these players playing from, from around the globe? 
this is a global server, but it's uh, predominantly people from the from the U.S. Okay, because I was going to ask you whether or not that you can even start to theorize whether there is a a cultural element to this competitiveness that that would factor in. Yeah, I mean that would be a great thing to study. I mean, there's some in previous work that I think Aton can speak to better than I can about that. But um, unfortunately, with this data, we don't uh, we don't have we don't know very much about the individual uh, players. Yeah, we love some demographics. I mean, I assume that the the player pool is vast majority male uh, right. and U.S. based, um, and that's the other part to it. Yeah, know. male female. Right. Exactly. Uh, great having you here. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you, Eitan. Uh, Ashton, thank you very much for uh, giving us some of your time up there in Toronto today. Thanks very much. Thank you. All the best to you both. Uh, Eitan Green, Assistant Professor in the Operations, Information, and Decisions Department here at the Wharton School here in Philadelphia. And also joining us on the phone, Ashton Anderson, who is an Assistant Professor in Computer Science at the University of Toronto. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.